Now, if you are Venezuela, Saudi Arabia or BP, the year has not started well. Something extraordinary has been happening to the oil price. Oil prices have collapsed. The International Energy Agency says we're drowning in crude, which raises the question, how can those in the business community keep their heads above water? Mr. Gage, you are now putting another billion dollars of your own money uh, into green innovation. Well, the returns will come uh, partly through the benefits to society, and so... Uh, well, good afternoon, everybody. Today, we're here to announce America's Clean Power Plan, a plan two years in the making, and the single most important step America has ever taken in the fight against global climate change. But I am convinced that no challenge pose a greater threat to our future. Hi, and welcome to this edition of the Off the Charts podcast. I'm your host and executive director of the Energy Policy Institute at UChicago, Sam Waring. Now, as you probably know, back in December, 196 countries agreed to a landmark climate agreement in Paris intended to bring about a peak and ultimately sharp reductions in global carbon dioxide emissions. In its own words, the Paris Accord sets out a global action plan to put the world on track to avoid dangerous climate change by limiting future warming of the Earth to about 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. But the Paris Agreement was just that, a negotiated settlement among parties. So in this edition of the podcast, we're going to focus on a big number, 55. That's both the number of countries and the share of total global carbon dioxide emissions that need to be on board to bring the Paris Climate Treaty officially into force. And as it happens, climate negotiators from around the world are in Bonn, Germany this week discussing the path forward. Here to give us the inside scoop is EPIC senior advisor Pete Ogden, former climate lead at the White House and the State Department. Pete, welcome and thanks for joining me today by phone. Thanks for having me. Uh, so Pete, uh, I thought it might be interesting to kind of start off with a little bit of background on uh, just exactly what sort of led up to Paris and you know how, how did we get to, to where we ended up at the end of last year um, with all these countries coming together and making this agreement? Uh, sure, that's a great question. I mean, I think that it was really a six-year project um, of the Obama administration. Uh, it came in in 2009 uh, with uh, the world sort of poised to strike a big international agreement in Copenhagen. And... Uh, in, in, and there was a short fuse because that, that, that climate conference, you know, had been agreed upon a couple of years before, uh, the previous administration hadn't really been, you know, moving on it. Uh, there was, there was sort of great awareness that with, uh, the Obama administration coming in, they would take a different tact, a different approach. So, you know, again, by the time the administra administration came in after the transition, it was about nine months before that huge conference was going to take place. Uh, and it came up really fast. Uh, the, you know, the, 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 the kind of guiding principle, one of the, or one, that's one of the key guiding principles of the administration in its approach was learning some of the lessons of the predecessor agreement, the Kyoto Protocol, which the United States had never joined, which only had required uh, greenhouse gas reductions from the, a set of developed countries um, with all the other major emerging economies, China, India, others, uh, under uh, uh, no no comparable obligation to reduce emissions, uh, and no and and looking at that landscape and being very clear that there was no interest in duplicating that experience, and and the rest of the world 
agreed because they very much wanted and needed uh, the United States on board. Uh, they needed the emissions reductions. We all need the emissions reductions from all of the other major emerging economies uh, to be part of the solution. And the facts on the ground obviously had changed quite a bit from Kyoto, um, even as recent as, as uh, Copenhagen, and then and then certainly by Paris with with China, uh, in particular. You know, the emissions in China surpassing the U.S. and Absolutely. I mean, surging well, you know, well ahead. And, you know, however you look at it, even on a per capita level, uh, emissions in China exceed those of, of some European countries. Uh, so it's just a very different global landscape. Um, and uh, also, um, uh, you know, growing interest and capability uh, in actually developing the clean energy uh, alternatives that were needed to solve the just to meet the challenge uh, it became uh, something that countries, you know, had had made progress on, and we're seeing the potential and, and broader economic and environmental benefits of pursuing. Uh, but you know, it the 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 challenge in part though is always figuring out how what you're doing at home is going to match up with what you're doing abroad. And you know, in 2009, it what was moving its way through Congress at the time of Copenhagen was a comprehensive energy and climate bill. Uh, it actually passed the House of Representatives pending in the Senate, and it didn't seem ludicrous at all at that time to think that that might happen. Um, and so, you know, th there was a period in which, um, you know, it looked like we could have our, a domestic uh, configuration that would really match up well uh, with what we were seeking internationally. Um, Copenhagen ended up being able to only lay the foundation for what was ultimately achieved. But I would argue that it was an extremely important foundation and often underappreciated for what it did to make Paris possible. The Copenhagen Agreement um, was ended up being um, uh, uh, time limited. It was only to cover between uh, the period up to 2020. Um, because you know that was that was that was it. People realized that they wanted to get more, they weren't comfortable with making Copenhagen in its current form uh, the, the, the enduring, durable framework that they would then make Paris, which is open-ended. The Paris Agreement can be continually replenished uh, and sort of is a living agreement designed to, to go on and on and on until we've eventually met its objectives and solved the, gotten at least on top of the climate challenge and, and made it manageable. Um, Copenhagen was a discrete input over a period of time, but it was it was at its core fundamentally different from the Kyoto Protocol. Uh, it had the key elements that we would then see more fully realized in Paris. It had, for instance, every major economy, not just the developed ones, put forth uh, defined greenhouse gas reduction targets by 2020. Um, they were different in kind, you know, different different sorts of targets. But they all did it. That it never happened in a single document. Uh, it had uh, very clear commitments for um, uh, developed countries to provide um, uh, public and private uh, uh, investment and assistance for developing countries to help them uh, to, you know, achieve their sustainable economic goals, to reduce emissions, and also to adapt to climate change. And it also had a, uh, you know, enhanced reporting provision so that there, you would have a better sense of whether countries were doing what they were saying they would do and living up to their commitments, which was, you know, seen as important because there's, there was no other really credible punitive element of the agreement. 
Um, and, you know, in many ways, Paris took those elements and was able to uh, uh, enshrine them in an agreement that that kind of strengthened them um, and but and, and put them in the context of a, of a legal agreement, formal legal agreement that would then extend them on into the future. So the way that, that to get there, to go back to the, the discussion we were having briefly before, we all know the story after 2010 was that comprehensive energy climate legislation was gone. Um, and sort of the, but the question was, and at one point they asked President Obama, well, how are you gonna, you know, how are you gonna do this? How are you even gonna make good on what you committed to in Copenhagen, much less imagine further reductions down the line and he sort of said, well, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Right. And we sort of, over the next couple of years, saw what that would mean, which would be a, a, a series of uh, executive actions using uh, executive authority, uh, regulations, and other tools to, to build a credible set of policies that they could then go to the global community and say, okay, you know, here's what we can do. America can achieve these targets. Um, even without comprehensive climate legislation. And that's ultimately uh, what we agreed to do uh, in Paris. So was the, the in terms of uh, the bridge, I guess, uh, from Copenhagen to Paris, the, the failing at Copenhagen or, or, or uh, you know, the reason that I guess this agreement didn't get done at Copenhagen, I mean, I think you point out that the conversation changed in important ways at Copenhagen. There was there were new uh, elements that were brought to the table and everyone could start to see the outlines of what an agreement could look like. Um, but what was sort of the missing ingredient? I mean, I guess some of it you could argue is that uh, the U.S. didn't was at this interesting political moment and, you know, wasn't ready to 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 credibly really lead uh, among all these different countries without having a plan at home. But it, it seems like there must have been other issues that prevented uh, finalizing things at Copenhagen. That's a great question. And I think probably different people have different reads on it. To me, there's probably two critical things that changed. One was, I think that the expectations that Paris or Copenhagen rather would deliver an agreement that looked a lot like Kyoto, uh, but would somehow include the United States and China and India, would somehow be reached or was reachable. Uh, when that wasn't the case, um, was a big expectations problem. And I think that that only once people, I think, came to realize that that wasn't a recipe, uh, that wasn't an arrangement that was achievable then, and I don't, and I think five years later, six years later, you saw fewer and fewer countries really pushing for that. I think by the time of Paris, they were looking at the new paradigm and thinking, how do we make that as strong as possible, rather than how do we try to convince, how do we try to swim against the tide here and try to see if we can't force countries back into uh, a Kyoto model? I mean, certainly. You know, again, the, the 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 these talks, you know, and it, it rightly, you know, very much revolve around the U.S. and China. You know, together we make up, you know, well more than a third of emissions, um, and we sort of stand as kind of respect and as the top two emitters. Um, uh, you know, we have a singular role here, um, 
and the and that's why it leads me to my second piece, which is China. I think um, reoriented its position quite a bit during that period um, when Xi Jinping came in and you know announced his war on pollution. Uh, uh, it really opened up climate change as an area where uh, be, uh, where political activity and leadership was actually something that China was became more comfortable with. Um, it was it 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 was driven probably not even principally by their climate concerns. I mean their 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 local air and water pollution issues uh, are you know extremely acute. Uh, and and very much top of mind there, but it became also clear that these issues were best solved together. A lot of these measures that you take, though not all, to reduce uh, to improve air quality are very consistent, highly consistent with things you would do to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So once that reorientation happened, and and you know to the uh, administration's Obama administration's credit. Oh, the administration was there to seize it to try to forge that partnership. Suddenly, you had a you had a situation in which the U.S. and China were, uh, you know, you don't want to overstate it. It's not like they see eye to eye and everything, but they saw a way to an agreement that um, that they could both be a part of, and that was did not have to be all adversarial. And so that was why you saw so early on in the process, before any other countries had actually even announced what they would do, what they would commit to in, in, in Paris, Xi Jinping and President Obama stood side by side in Beijing and put forth their, their domestic plans together. And I think at that point, um, it set the tone for a different kind of outcome in Paris than than the than what happened in in Copenhagen. And so the and, and just uh, on your first point to sort of clarify, so the the change in terms of structure from uh, what was what had been done at Kyoto was what where expectations it seems uh, rested at, at Copenhagen, but then ultimately sort of evolved before Paris was this idea that individual countries would get specific emissions reductions assigned to them almost uh, in this kind of legally binding framework. And that proved to be too hard to do at Copenhagen. And coming out of that, ultimately, negotiators said, well, maybe there's another way to do this in which countries put forward uh, voluntary plans that are individually developed and tailored to their own, you know, their own needs. And everyone, you know, puts forward the maximum that they think they can do. And that ultimately makes up this agreement that's a, that will be maybe not in some ways as crystal clear uh, as, a, as individually binding targets would be, but would be a huge step forward in terms of collective action. That's extremely well put, Sam. Thank you. Well, but, but let me say, you actually put your finger on a really interesting question, um, which is how, uh, and one of the hottest issues of debate, which was, well, the Paris Agreement is legally binding. It's part, it, it's a, uh, it falls under and derives legal authority from an international treaty that was signed back in 1992, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, that was ratified by the U.S. Senate uh, and has all the full force of an international legally binding treaty. But that doesn't mean that everything in the Paris Agreement is international legally binding. Uh, and in particular, there are two pieces that 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 are not. One is, as you note, our actual or any country's climate or greenhouse gas reduction target is not internationally legally binding. And 
any of the kind of financial and assistant commitments that we make are not internationally legally binding. Um, and one of the questions, obviously, the debate was uh, uh, revolved a lot around, well, what you do this, but at, at what cost, right? What do you lose in that process? What do you give up? Uh, and is that a fatal flaw, right? Whereas Kyoto had these legally binding agreements. So the, what's interesting is you hear, and it's an interesting issue because you hear the, you know, the, the people who, who support it, of course, you, you can easily imagine that, or who believe that you need the internationally legally binding targets for this to work, you know, their case is, is evident, right? I mean, they just think that that, that adds a element of, of obligation uh, that is, is higher somehow in some higher order and countries are more likely to comply. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's, that's one set of perspectives. The other people who were less, who were not either not interested in that agreement, uh, in, in there being legally binding or who felt that just on net, it was better not to have legally binding agreements came at it from a number of different angles. I mean, you know, obviously, uh, you know, some people who just simply pointed out the U S can't, the U S threshold for treaty ratification is extremely high. Right. And if you, you know, you, you think you're, if, if, if you think that you're going to get 67 votes in our Senate for a climate treaty, you know, they said, well, that's crazy. Uh, it's not going to happen for years. So just sitting around and waiting for that doesn't do anyone any good. And if the United States isn't part of it, then the whole thing starts to crumble. Right. Um, uh, you know, other people are pointed out Kyoto Protocol was legally binding, had all those trappings, but countries started missing their targets and they just fell out of the treaty. You know, you had Japan backing out, Canada backing out. So again, if people said, "Well, realistically, how much how, how much of an obstacle was being in a treaty uh, when the political will evaporated or external circumstances just made it impossible to hit their targets?" Um, so really, how much are you losing? Um, and then a third, you know, one of the, the other other arguments was, you in fact. You would, you would, you, you might just be encouraging lowball targets because if you think that all, yeah, if you think it's the worst thing in the world, if you sh if you end up a tenth of a percentage point south of your target and you're going to be in violation of international law, then shouldn't you lowball your target? Right. Because that way you you know you're confident. And it's not like you know it's not like a nuclear arms treaty where you're going to be able to go in and count warheads or you know other sorts of things. I mean. This is, it's very hard to predict exactly what your energy sector is going to, to, to be emitting, much less your land use sector, 20 years out. And so maybe you're better off encouraging countries to be more ambitious, to stretch their goals, uh, knowing that if they come a point short, that's okay. Better to have, you know, you still end up on net, on net uh, better off. Um, so regardless... Um, uh, and 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 I guess there's a fourth. Sorry, just to say that there's a fourth issue, which is that it would have been exceedingly difficult to get um, the get China and others to agree to a legally binding agreement that treated them exactly the same as uh, developed countries, right. because the precedent of the Kyoto Protocol was that there was differentiation and that there were different kinds of legally legal obligations, and that Therefore, the only way to really create equivalence was by moving to this other model, where they could uh, be held 
equally accountable. All the countries equally accountable to hit their targets. Um, and anyways, at the end of the day, uh, you know, there was debate over the last few years on this. But uh, at the end, I think if you look at the reaction of the international community and uh, and even the environmental community, you know, for the most part, um, people were uh, satisfied with the new with this with this legal structure. So, so that seems to me to be a good sort of launching off point. You know, that's sort of how we got to Paris. That was the novel innovation of Paris and what made Paris different. Um, and these countries came together and made this agreement. And in total, they set a goal of reducing uh, re- reducing emissions uh, over time to a level that limits future warming to 1.5 degrees. Uh, and everyone has put forward their individually developed plans. Uh but we have a big step ahead of us now. And so the agreement, the agreement uh, exists on paper, but actually bringing it into force now requires some next steps. And so, as I mentioned earlier, negotiators are on bond this week, and you have a piece up on Forbes.com today kind of walking through uh, you know, what needs to happen to bring the agreement into force and what are some of the big outstanding questions out there uh, that we should be looking to over the next, uh, over the next year and more. Uh, around that. So, so I guess walk us through what, what's happening in Bonn this week. Yeah, that is, uh, it is actually very good timing to be discussing this because, uh, as you note, we have negotiated an agreement and most, maybe all, probably not all, of the leaders who agreed to what was, were, were, are still in power when they were last December. Uh, and those are all the people who agreed to a text. But it doesn't actually come into force until each country does what it has to do to formally join. And that varies country by country. Um, and, you know, because as we were talking about the legal form of this agreement doesn't require that the United States executive branch do anything other than some actually pretty simple um, bureaucratic steps and uh, they can sort of deposit the necessary instrument of ratification on its own easily this year. But for other countries, it's more complicated. Um, and so the, there was always a question of how quickly you could, even if everyone agreed, how quickly you could actually get everyone to do the necessary, take the necessary steps. Um, and what's actually been one of the surprises this year, and it's actually even been a surprise to the negotiators, is how quickly this is happening. Because the Copenhagen Agreement, as I said, covers us until 2020. So this agreement doesn't even begin to set its own uh, kind of work deadlines for a couple of years. And it buys itself a little time to work through some of the language to, to and we'll talk about this, uh, or I'll talk about this in a, a, a little bit. You know, there, there are elements of the agreement where they sort of agreed on high-level principles, goals, frameworks. But, you know, you have to actually operationalize it. You need to do some further negotiation. I mean, the thought was you allow countries, you know, a couple of years to get to that threshold while you work through these other pieces. Uh, and you don't blow you don't you don't blow blow up the agreement. It's not a problem if it takes two years, right? So they didn't want to create a situation in which um, you, you you know the 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 internal structure of the agreement started to begin to unwind. But that was that's turned out to be the opposite case where you we were already at about fifty percent of global of of global emissions covered here. Enough countries that constitute for half of global emissions have already said that they can get it done this year. Uh, which is, on the one level, on the one level, fantastic, uh, because you have all of those countries and leaders in place 
who struck the deal and the political circumstances around it haven't changed dramatically, right? So the, the, the circumstances that allowed countries to make these commitments are still there and in place. Uh, and I think that there's a lot of interest in all, in countries, what you're seeing is they want to get this done now while, and before those circumstances change. Um, and it looks very much like we're going to get it done this year uh, and this thing will come into force. So that, that would be a big victory. It would be a big win for the Obama administration in particular who is looking to lock in as much of this as it can under its own own watch. And so to go back to your, to the big numbers, I mean, uh, so it's 55 countries and representing 55% of global emissions that, that uh, is needed to, to bring it into force. And as you write in Forbes, we've already got uh, 35 countries representing almost 50% of global emissions that have committed to, to formally join the agreement this year, this calendar year. So that's close. correct. And, you know, interestingly, you know, the way that it, it works, uh, you know, that includes the US and China. Uh, but then the numbers get much smaller. I mean, then you're then, you know, we then you have the European Union, which for various reasons, won't get it done this year. Uh, they're a they're a big slug, you know, in the teens, fifteen around fifteen percent of global emissions. Uh, they've said very publicly that they want they will get it done next year. They would clearly put us over the top. But when you take them off the table, then you got to be looking for some other major countries because you know again many countries are have minimal carbon emissions uh, uh, from a global perspective, and whether we'll get a Japan in this year uh, could make all the difference in terms of getting it over the finish line. But in any case, I do think that there, are, there this has, um, this is an area in which progress has exceeded expectations. And, and, so, str- uh, and the people in bond now are, are, fran- are frankly, wor- know that they have to work faster because this thing is gonna come into force faster than they expected. So some of these outstanding issues uh, that, that still require slogging through need to get done. What are some of those outstanding issues? So if it does come into agreement, or if it does come into force this year, what are some of the things that need to get resolved? Well, one of the things that the United States perspective has been really critical is having a transparency framework here that's that's robust because, um, you know, we we have always um, felt that, you know, it was, it was going to be really essential that we have both for fairness, but also just for the ability to continually make the case that we are solving this action collectively and knowing that we are doing that, that we're actually solving this problem requires knowing the countries are doing what they're saying they're going to do. Right. I mean, if, you know, if, if only one, and, and at the end of the day, that's what, that's what success will be determined by. So, um, we have been pushing and, you know, other countries too, for really trying to build out the transparency element so that we know what the levels are, what the, what kind of, um, uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions are coming from all countries around the world. And, you know, as you can imagine, because while some countries, developed countries primarily, have been monitoring this because we've either they had international obligations or they have other environmental regulations in place that require uh, good accounting, like, for instance, a cap-and-trade system. If you have a cap-and-trade system, you have to have some ability to be measuring greenhouse gas emissions with some accuracy and transparency so you can actually credibly sell them to people and trade them for offsets um but a lot of countries you know it just it hasn't been something they have a lot of experience in i mean you know they just legitimately are just developing the tools and devices and the systems to uh accurately 
measure their emissions. I mean, you know, it's, it was interesting. China sort of got um, uh, some a lot of negative attention because it upwardly revised several months ago uh, its its own emissions estimates significantly. But and and you know, and and of course, it took a lot of uh, heat for doing that. And people said, you know, this is why we shouldn't trust them. I sort of actually felt the opposite, which was that you know, it was actually, it was a, uh, what they did was the right thing to do. I mean, they actually, they brought their own emissions more. It, they, it was essentially a recalculation of, based on a better understanding or updated understanding of the kinds of coal they had been using and the carbon content. And in any case, you know, they came up with a better number. Would it have been their interest not to, not to have to fess up? I mean, you know, maybe. Um, but I think actually that's that's kind of what you want with transparency, <laughs> you know, because at the end of the day, them lowballing their emissions and not telling us is only going to make it harder for us to figure out what we have to do to solve this problem. So I think what you're I think you're seeing a general drift as countries start to manage the problem. They're going to need to measure it. And one of the components, one of the key elements of the Paris Agreement was to build this transparency framework that would lead to um, enhanced reporting, better reporting, more support, uh, technical assistance. But that's a big complicated undertaking. And there's still pieces of it that need to be elaborated, mechanisms that need to be worked out. You need to figure out how to get the right kind of expertise and uh, what kind of schedules make sense and so forth. And so that's one of the things that needs to get, um, you know, needs to get worked out. If not, it won't get resolved this year. But I think uh, I think it's an area where you'd really hope to see some progress uh, and cooperation as opposed to becoming an area that's just adversarial for some reason. And so that was a big uh, the the measurement and transparency components are, I guess, uh, worth it's worth noting that there are significant com- uh, additions. Um, and I guess uh, features of the Paris Agreement, the the measurement component in particular, is the key legally binding uh, component of the agreement. Is that right? So co- countries are bound. Uh, they put forward their 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 individual uh, plans for reducing emissions, um, and those are not legally binding internationally. But the actual uh, producing of 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 or the reporting of emissions levels over time in these periodic increments is legally binding. And so it's important to have a an agreed upon mechanism or set of standards for how that information is going to be reported. Absolutely. I mean, that, that responsibility derives directly from a treaty, an underlying treaty. So um, you, it's, a, it's an excellent point that that's that's a, we take that very seriously and are, you know, very much want other countries to abide by it. Again, even if the truth is, you know, the truth is worse than we thought, then we should still know it. And we still have, you know, the agreement itself can then respond to it and we can figure out ways to, to manage the problem. Uh, so hopefully that's something that we'll see uh, the world do a significantly better job in, you know, over the coming years. Now, the, the, uh, th- I think a theme in this story has been the importance of U.S. leadership, U.S. leadership um, in terms of the commitments that we made side by side with China and moving things forward and uh, on a whole host of other fronts. One of the questions that you raise uh, in, in in your piece on Forbes or, or uh, things that you sort of point out that we should be keeping an eye on is whether or not the U.S. can demonstrate that we're determined to meet the commitments we made at Paris. So we made some pretty significant or, or pretty, uh, you know, pretty compelling emissions reductions commitments at, at Paris. And those 
reductions were built on a suite of policies that had been put in place over the last couple of years, most notably the Clean Power Plan, but not only the Clean Power Plan. Uh, and the Clean Power Plan has had, uh, since Paris, has had a couple of uh, sort of legal um, legal bumps in the road. And most recently, this uh, this past week, the, the D.C. Circuit Court uh, moved the date of, of their review from June 2nd up to, uh, you know, uh, back to September 27th. What's the what's sort of the outlook for for the review of the clean power plan, and how are other countries looking at this, and what's the signal they're taking from it? Yeah, well, in the the in February, the Supreme Court issued a stay while um, the a circuit court was reviewing it to uh, of the clean power plan, um, which was, as you said, sort of a bump in the road uh, issue of concern to a lot of people around the world. Again, fresh fresh off of Paris, and then you know suddenly there's uncertainty about what this means. Um, I think the, I think that what's sort of interesting about it is, uh, first of all, the Clean Power Plan doesn't actually begin to have, uh, 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 go into effect until 2022. So it's designed to cover a period from 2022 to 2030. Getting this resolved in the next year wouldn't, shouldn't have meaningful bearing on that. I mean, you know, states, considering what would happen, there should still be adequate time to do the necessary planning and for the rule to come into effect. So I don't think that uh, uh, it has a substantive impact uh, at this point, um, or didn't when they issued the stay. But of course, the signal is, you know, uh, is you know is is that it's being considered and that it's you know and that it's it's not a done deal yet and it has to get all the way up to the Supreme Court which is where it will go no matter who wins at what round for the next you know the next uh, back and forth it will eventually be appealed all the way up to the Supreme Court uh, the by moving the date back as you point out uh, they also skipped a step which is they moved from a they went to the a full full court from just a three judge panel hearing so. Whether at the end of the day this means it gets the Supreme Court desk, you know, into the docket earlier or later than it would have, I think is unclear. Obviously, there's great unclarity about when it does get to the Supreme Court, are there going to be eight justices sitting there or nine, and who will have appointed the ninth? So there is still, you know, uh, uh, you know, more more issues to be navigated here. But I also would say that substantively, nothing is lost. I mean, this could all this can all work through. And we remain right on track, but it doesn't mean there won't be some drama along the way. Is the I guess the one potential uh, hiccup to that could be if states um, are you know that are part of the lawsuit are postponing the development of their plans. How much of that? Well, I think the states states that are part of the lawsuit are you know not as fully engaged as planning is. I think people would hope they would be right now, and probably won't really get as involved as they need to be until they that at least for some of them until the supreme court ruling settles the matter and they decide to make peace with it and start to you know to plan and do what they think is right for their state uh, rather than 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 just try to fight fight the whole thing um i think that you know to balance that there's actually been some good news and even from congress uh in terms of the ultimate um, achievability of the country's climate targets was that in December, on the last day in session, they extended some critical clean energy tax incentives that were up, that were, with fate was very uncertain, not a lot 
uh, of, of constructive uh, clean energy and climate-related legislation passing through Congress. And these are critical provisions for wind and solar deployment. And Congress passed them. Um, it was part of a kind of a package trade with the lift of our oil export ban. Uh, I think though that those two, those, those, those tax provisions are absolutely critical to getting to our, uh, to our, our, uh, our Paris targets. So, you know, there's been some sort of static and uncertainty on some fronts. On other fronts, there's already been some progress. So, um, again, I, I, everything is still there, um, but the fight isn't over. And there have been some other confidence-building measures uh, as well that you point out, and that there we, we, we should be looking for some additional ones coming over the next couple months. Most recently, uh, the Department of Interior released its uh, methane emissions rules on, on federal, for oil and gas production on federal lands. Uh, there could be some, following on uh, Interior's reforms of co-leasing policy, there could be some, some additional steps, it sounds like, in the offing. So it seems like over the, the final months of the administration, there, there could be additional steps to really sort of build that confidence. I think that's right. I mean, I think that they're going to try to lay the framework for their their uh, next round of fuel vehicle fuel efficiency standards as well. That's another big issue uh, that I think we'll keep an eye on. So uh, we've talked about the Supreme Court. We've talked about some of the steps that the Obama administration uh, may take or, or plans to take over the final months. But that does kind of bring into the picture the idea of political risk or, or that there, there's a political element to some of this because of the way that um, the U.S. has moved forward with its steps, um, as you say, as you as you rightly point out, the a lot of these steps have been done through the administrative, uh, through the executive branch rather, and, and administrative actions um, because of the need to to find more than one way to skin a cat after the failing of the of the cap and trade bill in 2010. So, uh, with that much power uh, and decision making on this sitting in the executive branch, and we're in the middle of a presidential election, it sort of brings to Brings up the natural question of how would a President Trump interpret some of these uh, some of these steps, and what steps might a President Trump take uh, as uh, you know in a, in a future administration? And he made some some comments this week that shed some shed some light, or sort of a curtain raiser on his views. Yeah, I mean, you know, in the past he has called climate change a hoax conducted by the Chinese to kill American jobs. Um, he said yesterday that he would renegotiate the Paris Agreement, which, you know, again, I think to the, my heart goes out to the American negotiating team in Bonn, who's trying to bring, trying, as I said earlier, to actually catch up, really keep up with the momentum of the Paris Agreement and its, and its near-term potential entry into force by trying to get all this work done and keep, keeping people sort of all... Uh, uh, you know, rowing together in the same same direction. Now they're going to have to answer and you know a million questions, which they probably would have been asked anyways about what it would mean, what President Trump would mean. But now he's really elevated it by raising the specter of somehow uh, uh, toppling this this incredibly difficult and painstakingly constructed agreement. Um, so that's that is obviously extremely unsettling. Um, I mean, the truth is that, you know, I think some of these elements, as I said, you know, we, we don't know the full suite of Donald Trump's policy ideas in this space. Um, some of these elements, as I talked about, you know, are, are actually 
passed by laws passed by Congress doesn't mean they can't pass alternative laws uh, to undo them. Uh, so again, I would probably, I don't know, if we had a cap and trade in place right now, probably know Trump would, I don't think that would prevent him from saying he would try to pass countervailing legislation. It's not like the laws underpinning the Affordable Care Act are considered sacrosanct, right? I mean, right. so there's always going to be in any system, there's nothing as permanent and political, you can always, you can undo anything. Um, but, you know, the, the executive orders, you know, uh, you know, are certainly things that I think that 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 he is he is going to try to, you know, dilute or weaken based on statements he's made uh, about wanting to uh, uh, reduce the regulatory authority of the EPA, uh, maybe even abolish the EPA. I'm not sure. Um, so that's, so I think on that's the, be a challenge. So that's um, on the on the on some of the I guess regulations that have been put in place. But in terms of the Paris Agreement itself, I mean, in the event that uh, you know we're still relatively early in the election season, but it's not so early to speculate. I mean, in the in the event that he was elected, does that you know, uh, and and given his policy positions, does that uh, undermine the the Paris Agreement to the extent that it would be? that it would become, you know, sort of null and void? If it is entered into force, uh, as it looks like, or is right on the precipice of, I mean, I think you see a demonstration of how the cost of trying to get unwind this, the diplomatic toll, uh, because, again, it's, it's, it's 190-plus countries, all of whom, you know, are, uh, have, have made compromises, have worked hard to try to get to where they got to, um, and the notion of... of, of, of 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 just restarting that whole process, I think, is you know confronted with that reality. I think there would be a you know significant pain pain uh, diplomatically to try to do such to try to do something. Uh, and it's not clear to me uh, that there's a better agreement that would actually accomplish the goals of the Paris Agreement itself. Uh, I'm not sure. What, so what what that exactly means uh, that would do. A better job of combating climate change. You also have to remember that the, you know, the Supreme Court. A lot of this regulatory authority extends from the fact that Congress, through the Clean Air Act, em- empowered the executive branch to uh, to regulate pollutants. And in 2007, the Supreme Court issued an endangerment finding classifying greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide, as among uh, as a pollutant to be regulated. So. To, I think you would find and you would attempt to argue that uh, these policies are not consistent with law uh, is going to be just heavily disputed. And then attempts to unroll them will, would, would have to be, you know, would be fought because you would have to somehow, you would have to be able to justify that. Um, and it's not, it's, 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 it's not as though. Uh, this was all being done in ways that was, you know, not that was inconsistent with the original underlying uh, legislation. And so, uh, I guess the takeaway then is that uh, I think you're right that to make big changes to some of the regulations that are in place, especially given the authority from which those regulations, you know, are, are derived, uh, would be would be difficult and painstaking and take a lot of time and would require any future administration to come back and, and explain why they were doing it and what they were doing. Um, so, I mean, that's sort of the good news, uh, and that regardless of how a potential President Trump or 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 any other Republican president 
you know, that had ran, that was running this time, I think probably would have taken the same tack. Um, regardless of how they, you know, treat the Paris Agreement, some of the momentum that's been built in the U.S. over the last several years is is going to be is pretty hard to reverse. It'll be fought. You know, it'll be fought and it'll, it'll be very costly and the diplomatic fallout would be severe. And all, and again, you know, from, from my perspective, I think we've gotten to this place where, you know, however, that, that there a lot more work still needs to be done. I mean, the other thing I think to the first part of our conversation, which is the Paris Agreement isn't just something that now is on a kind of puts us on an easy glide path. We, it actually, to really fulfill it, its ultimate objective of trying to meet the climate challenge it's not just about defending what's already in place. That's not enough. So what we, what we, what we need to fulfill the Paris Agreement is to do more, uh, to meet the climate challenge. And the Chinese need to do more, and Indians need to do more. And that's, that was, that's built into the Paris Agreement, the notion that, that this agreement lives on and that over time it gets, as you know, every five years, you put in new, more ambitious targets, and you continually move the needle forward, uh, that's going to require not just sort of presidential acquiescence uh, to the status quo of whatever he or she inherits, but actually, you know, figuring out how to how to continue to drive forward and lead and do more. So um, it's not an easy task. And if the Obama administration you know, it's 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 had it, it's why it's it's so busy in this space this last year at, uh, in, on climate activity rather than just you know relaxing and resting on its laurels. Well, I think that's all the time that we have. Uh, I, so I think we'll end it there. Thanks, Pete. That's uh, there's there's a lot to digest there. There's uh, so Pete's uh, piece on this is up on Forbes.com. So I encourage you to to check it out this week and. Make sure to subscribe to our Off the Charts podcast wherever you get your podcasts, including on the iTunes store uh, and also on our website at epic.uchicago.edu. So for now, thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Sam Ori.